Good evening. Uh, my name is Paul Simin, and as editor of the Winnipeg Free Press, uh, I am delighted to be here to be with you, to be with our readers, to talk about something that really matters, and to talk about something that is important that we do to serve this community. Uh, we're here also to celebrate the role that newspapers play in our democracy and why journalism matters now more than ever before to ensure that voters can get the information they need from a source that they can trust. Now, this campaign that we're in the midst of right now, I think it's week three of a five-week campaign, and for those of us in Manitoba, week eight of non-stop politicking. Uh, we haven't seen this before. Uh, in fact, we have a story in tomorrow's paper. There are 10 candidates running who ran in the provincial campaign are now running in the federal campaign. You can only imagine what their lives are like. Anyways, um, this is the first election, federal election in Canada, where we're facing the very real threat. This isn't theoretical. We know, based on what we saw in the US experience in 2016, that our democracy could be hijacked by hackers and those in the fake news game. We all know that facts matter, or they should matter. But sorting out fact from fabrication is increasingly difficult in the media landscape that pushes clicks, sorry, clickbait, and where going viral is frequently more important than what is based on reality. Whether we like it or not, we increasingly live in a post-truth world where, which the Oxford Dictionary defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, I think everyone in this room recognizes the danger of a post-truth world, and I applaud everyone here for realizing that a newspaper like the Free Press is the antidote to the post-truth world. And on behalf of the Free Press, I want to thank you for your support that allows our newsroom to be one of the few newspapers left in Canada to maintain a parliamentary bureau in Ottawa, along with dedicated political reporters at the Manitoba Legislature and at City Hall. Now, be thank you. Now, before we start our discussions, I need to acknowledge that the Free Press, since 1872, has been published on Treaty 1 territory and the homeland of the Métis. I make that acknowledgement partly because it's the historical fact of the Winnipeg Free Press publishing here in Winnipeg and in Manitoba. But that acknowledgement isn't just about the past. It's a basis for us to move forward. And it's the basis for some of the questions that we're going to be talking about, because you saw in the debates last night, Indigenous issues were front and centre, and we're going to be canvassing them as well, because I can't think of another province in this country where those issues are so important that we get solutions. I also, as Bob mentioned, need to thank Stephen Boris and the rest of the team here at the Winnipeg Art Gallery for making this remarkable space available to us tonight. Art is stories, that's what the WAG is about. Not surprising they're a good partner with the Winnipeg Free Press because what we do is tell stories about our city and province as well. Now, on with our show, which will be part of a live taping of the political broadcast podcast, Not for Attribution. You, as Free Press readers, can listen to that anytime just from uh, on our website, winnipegfreepress.com. Here's how things are going to work tonight. The first half is going to be a panel discussion with our political writers and our pollster from Probe Research. Then, we're gonna turn the microphones over to you. We have two here uh, for you to be lead the question and answer session because your voice matters and your vote matters. Now, let me introduce our panel as the screen goes up. 
If only everyone in the newsroom listened to me like that. <laughs> ah, the power. Okay. Ooh, ah. We're going to start. We're going to kind of do like this price is right. Dan Lett, come on down. Our longtime political columnist, Dan Lett. Nagan Sinclair, this year's winner of the National Newspaper Award, is the country's top columnist, Nagan Sinclair. Just in time to cover two straight provincial elections, joining our team, Tom Broadbeck. And finally, Mary Agnes Welsh, she used to have a byline in the Winnipeg Free Press for years. Now she makes headlines frequently as a principal at Probe Research. Mary Agnes Welsh. For our first question, we're going to go to Jane in Squamish, BC. <laughs> no, sorry. That's right. I've been to Squamish, BC. Wrong yeah. debate. And then she stands there for two minutes. <laughs> That's right. yeah. Our first question is going to deal with the issue of trust, turnout, and turning off voters. We're going to riff off of something that each of our three columnists wrote. So I'm going to start with Dan Lett. On October 2nd, in the words of Dan Lett, right now it seems entirely possible that the nation might set some sort of record for low voter turnout in this election, given Canada's political parties are doing everything they can to dampen enthusiasm. From Liberal leader Justin Trudeau's grotesque blackface incidents to Conservative leader Andrew Scheer's Leave it to Beaver era approach to climate change to Green leader Elizabeth May's misadventures with disposable cups and Adobe Photoshop. Canadians have been presented with only two real choices, bad and worse. <laughs> You're very wordy. It's up, it's up. It sounds so much better when you read it. That's right. Dan, <clears throat> what is this lack of trust going to do to turn up? Um, well, it, uh, it, it's uh, it's pretty common tactic in an election uh, for an incumbent government. It doesn't matter what stripe it is to try and dampen, um, in, you know, uh, voter turnout. So, if you're running for re-election, you want fewer people turning out. And um, but I think that this election is more than just the Liberals deliberately trying to suppress. Uh, voter turnout. I think they've inadvertently gone well beyond the target that they may have had to some new level of, uh, and the word is, I, I had a conversation with Lloyd Axworthy, who was kind enough to show up tonight, um, and, and he mentioned you to me can't that, get enough of politics. He's supposed to be retired. But no, anyway, I know. I know. He's incorrigible. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, we were comparing notes because he had been out uh, with a candidate. And um, and the mood is, it's, uh, it's actually despondent. Um, and it's, you know, it's funny. Like, uh, I know cynicism, and I even know angry. I have never before seen such a chronic despondency uh, across uh, the people that I talk to, the people I interact with through our website and who write to me, um, oh, please, God, no, please don't make me make a decision if this is what I have to choose from. And um, I'm, I'm really kind of concerned about the integrity of the mandate, whoever forms government. Uh, because I think we're, you know, at 55% turnout, 
we're allowing about 22 or 23% of the people uh, to decide a majority government in a minority government, it could be fewer than one in five uh, registered voters who get a chance to decide who the government is. I am not, uh, I am not hopeful. Even two pre-forum beers have not made me any more hopeful about what's going to happen on October 21st. Right, we start the panel with the glass half empty. That's right, yeah. We're going to go to Tom Broadbeck. On September 9th, this is what Tom wrote in one of his columns. He was a teacher, an adult, in a position of authority and trust. It was a year after he delivered a televised eulogy of his father in 2000, which thrust him into the public spotlight and kick-started talks about a possible political career. While Trudeau did his best to express remorse Thursday, he was also dodgy when asked to provide further details and context of the incidents. When asked how many times he had darkened his face, at first Trudeau didn't answer. When pressed later, he said he didn't know how often and he had done it, he said he couldn't remember. So why is Justin Trudeau still a candidate for the 2019 federal election? So question for Tom. Has Trudeau's trust quotient taken enough hits to really hurt his party? And if not, how do you explain that? I think his brand has certainly uh, um, been undermined. There's no question about that. Um, when he came out with... Uh, his apology, which was here in Winnipeg, it was only after uh, he was caught, uh, after these pictures were revealed. Uh, it would have been a lot um, better if he had revealed this uh, on his own. Uh, but when he was asked questions about it, he was he was dodgy. He wasn't answering. He wasn't telling us, you know, how how often he was dressing up as a visible minority, blackening his face. Um, but the polls had didn't move much after that. So. Uh, while I think his brand took a hit to a certain degree, um, I think a lot of Canadians accepted his apology, and I think a lot of Canadians thought that it was heartfelt, and it really didn't move the needle hardly at all, which was a little surprising to me. Um, so it's never the kind of thing you want to see come up uh, when you're a candidate during a campaign, but um, I don't think that it really caused a lot of harm to him. Okay. I'm going to turn to Nagan on the issue of trust. And again, this is what you wrote. In political circles, people are far more interested in what party you belong to, which leader you support, and what side of the oil pipeline issue you are on than being a member of an Indigenous nation participating in Canadian in the Canadian election. Who can Indigenous voters trust? Anyone, again? Well, uh, this is the first federal election in Canadian history where Indigenous issues are relevant. There's, it's never happened in my life. Uh, I mean, I'm going on four decades, but there's no, there's been never been a time that there's been a federal party even in remotely engaged in Indigenous issues. And so uh, I think on one level, my glass half full way of seeing it is that uh, you've got people who are entering forays and discussions, and my column tomorrow is really about the complete ineptitude and inability of any federal party to understand really basic things like the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. They don't even understand what it is, but they're complaining about it. And, and it's, a, it's a pretty typical way to, 
to, when you don't understand anything, you don't, you don't read it, you just go and pick on one thing about it and then you, you pick upon it. But uh, I would say that the Green Party has the most aggressive policy in Canadian history when it comes to Indigenous peoples, because they, they want to recognize Indigenous nationhood, they want to um, have, uh, they want to follow the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which is to set up small pockets of, uh, or small grades of sort of provincial-like governments between treaties and so on. So, I mean, it's pretty aggressive policy, but I mean, it's easy to be an aggressive policy when you're never going to form. And uh, I think the NDP is in a similar position when it comes to that, but they're like the Green Party kind of light. The, the, the real problem for Indigenous people in this election is that it really doesn't matter if it's Liberals or Conservatives. Uh, the policies have generally been the same, but the rhetoric has been different. Or what I say about Trudeau is the, the heart's in the right place, but the mind isn't. Um, he's like he has no concept of, of what it means to to commit to the the United Nations Declaration or to commit to the TRC 94 calls to action or to commit to the Royal Commission, and and uh, that's unfortunate because then don't promise that. Like when you when you overpromise, uh, then you get apathy, and and this is the first time in, in Canadian history Indigenous peoples are participating in elections on mass, 61 and a half percent in 2015, and so therefore. Uh, you'd think you would foster that, but instead you overpromise, you disappoint, you set up things like the inquiry, murder, missing Indigenous women and girls inquiry to fail, and then surprise, surprise, people don't come out. But it's also worth noting that Indigenous peoples did not come out for Justin Trudeau the last election. They went against Stephen Harper. Like, that's why Indigenous peoples came out en masse. There is no Stephen Harper-like, Darth Vader-like person for the Indigenous community to turn to this time. Andrew Shear is not that person. Uh, Maxim Bernier is certainly not that person. Uh, and, and so, there is no person for Indigenous peoples to vote against, and I would say that that, spark, that sparks more coming out to vote than anything else. I think you're going to see a general drop-off of anywhere between 10 and 12% of Indigenous voters this time around. Now, Mary Agnes doesn't have a column, but she does have polling data. When we look at the issues of trust and, we, and uh, what influence that has on, on voter turnout, we know there's a direct line, actually. Newspaper readership, voter turnout. What, what, what are you seeing and what, what's at play here in this election when it, when, based on the poll that we had you do earlier uh, this month? Yeah, I, I think I'm going to maybe take a little bit of a devil's advocate, um, glass half full uh, approach here. There is pretty good data um, that trust in politicians is um, on the decline. It's something like two-thirds of Canadians don't particularly trust or think that their politicians have their best interest in mind, you know, are, are sort of working for the people, are, you know, are doing good for, for the citizens. Um, is that a new phenomenon? I think it's probably a little bit worse now. But the notion that, like, this election is such a, is such a bummer and everybody's despondent, I'm, I, I agree that that is true. This election is um, a, a bit of a mess, I think, in, in many ways. There's no clear narrative. But we have to remember we are coming off um, a mayoral election at this time last year that we were all sort of despondent about. Um, there, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I think, um, I think Canadians are also kind of perhaps resetting their expectations after the last federal election when we were really jazzed up for the first time in a long time, partly because we were so angry and frustrated with Harper and wanted to defeat him, but partly because we did have, as Negan says, all this, this hope um, and this possibility in Justin Trudeau that has not materialized. So it's, for me, I, I feel like maybe the pendulum is swinging back a little bit to our natural state as slightly skeptical um, Canadians. And I think the other thing I would say about that is I am, you know, I, I think probably the turnout will be lower this time, unfortunately. 
And when I was a reporter, I certainly did my share of like doom and gloom, turnout is declining stories. And in, in my heart, I think that's bad. But the more I think about it in my brain, I actually wonder if not voting is a rational decision by many Canadians. And I think part of that is many Canadians can't, they have other things to worry about um, in life, and voting is not going to be a top priority. Um, for many Canadians, it's a rational choice because I think their vote just doesn't matter, which gets back to this issue of, you know, of, of sort of the, potentially a genuine national discussion about proportional representation and democratic reform, which we are just, we barely get there. There's one big fan there, but we, we, we just, we can't quite seem to get there. So, and so I think, I think voters get out to vote when they think it matters, which we did last time. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, I think if turnout is low, and if we have this sense that this is not really working right now, perhaps that will foment a genuine debate about what our democratic system should look like. So, so, so in my heart, you know, yeah, we should all get out to vote for sure, but in my head, these are rational choices people make. Dan, is this a rebut or a... Uh, that, yeah, I, well, I wanted to start talking while she was still talking, but I thought I'd wait, so... Um, uh, no, it, so um, I went back and read the stories uh, pre-writ in 2015, and, um, and so a lot of the, uh, you know, and it is, I mean, you, you know this, like, Predicting the outcome of elections is totally the wrong thing for pollsters and for journalists to do. You do not get involved in handicapping the results. But it, it really, what really struck me was that there, there was kind of a sense in 2015, we'd had a decade of Stephen Harper, and it was kind of like, uh, you know, there were endless possibilities. And uh, that was largely expressed by the fact that the NDP went into the election mm -hmm. as the number one option. And, you know, uh, the NDP did, ran a horrible campaign, and the Liberals ran a great campaign, and uh, the Conservatives ran a campaign that should be studied in future years for what not to do uh, in a federal campaign. Um, but, so, the, the result wasn't surprising to me. The, re the result uh, reflected, I thought, the, the real narrative of the campaign, and voter turnout went up as people got more interested you know, as Trudeau established his brand and surged. But there was this idea that, you know, if we don't like the Liberals and the Conservatives, there was another option. What is extraordinary to me is the fact that um, through uh, blackface, brownface, um, you know, candidates with, you know, offensive, uh, you know, uh, baggage, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, SNC. Yeah, you know, like uh, the, the the dual citizenship, you know, attacking the former governor general when you're a dual for being a dual citizen when you're a dual citizen, and all the things they've done. I mean, like really, like Andrew Shear and Justin Trudeau should be like at the bottom of a lake somewhere, and yet, you know, I like you know nationally. I don't know about you know you guys are pro, but I mean, I kind of worship at the Nanos, uh, you know. Uh, um, Alter, and the results are just like stuck. We are stuck right now, kind of afraid to make a, a choice and embrace a green or an NDP mm -hmm. or God forbid, 
a People's Party of Canada option. Uh, but like we're like we're horribly stuck. There's no evidence that we have. There's there's a surge of respect or admiration for either Andrew Scheer or Justin Trudeau. The people who correspond with me, the only thing that's motivating them right now is a hatred of the other guy. And I'm not sure that I've ever seen people more motivated by a hatred of somebody else's leader without a shred of real confidence or respect for the party and leader that they want to support. So, I mean, I, like, I, I do sense something, you know, maybe different. And on election morning, I will admit, I fully expect to be proven wrong. Uh, but right now, like, I just, I think it's extraordinary how stuck we are. Uh, and how afraid we are to make a decision outside the narrow band of the Conservatives and the Liberals. It's just, it's very weird uh, stuff. Weird. Okay. We're going to move on to last night's debate. As moderator, it's my job to make sure I don't confuse Andrew Scheer with Jagmeet Singh. <laughs> and then, did you hear Trudeau? He said, I can't, he, said he made a joke, like, I can't take you, tell you apart or something. It's yeah. like, don't make that joke. No. <laughs> like, that's, like not, that's not the time to make that joke. No. Okay, well, we're going to start talking about Jagmeet Singh. I think everyone who watched the debate, what, each of the leaders at some level did what, they need, did what they needed to do. But having said that, I think generally... The conventional wisdom, such as it is some 24 hours after, was that Jagmeet Singh, uh, his performance was very strong, and if there was a winner, and I'm saying if, Jagmeet Singh would certainly be in the mix. So the question, and one of you, we're only going to do one answer here on this one, because I got four questions from the debate. Was Singh's performance strong enough to move his party up in the polls? Who wants to field that one? I don't think so. Um, they're hurting so bad in Quebec. Uh, I don't think a good performance. Uh, oh, there's the French yeah. language one coming up, and it'll be interesting to see how he does there. Uh, he did remarkably well in this in this debate. Uh, he, especially that first hour, he really cleared a lot of free time for himself to speak without others speaking over him, and he was very clear and articulate and and. Uh, very impressive. Um, I don't think it's enough to move the needle much for the NDP. Um, again, it, it all comes down to Quebec for them, and they're hurting so badly in that province. Um, might the French language debate uh, turn things for them? Possibly. If he has a repeat of performance, I think it could help him. But it's, it's a little uh, too little too late, though. Okay. Second question. Was Conservative leader Andrew Scheer too quick to turn to his angry soundbite? We all saw that first exchange. He had practiced it hard. He knew he knew the delivery. Who's yeah, going to take that like, one? I, yeah, I noticed right away that he he went he like within uh, like I think there was nothing more ironic than all of this kerfuffle around, including Maxim Bernier, and then who gets the, the who gets the first two answers in the debate? Like that's called karma, and and uh, and so including like his absolute like fringe views that border on completely irrelevant uh, is so, is so uh, indicative of that debate as a whole. Um, Andrew Scheer's performance, I thought, I thought he did incredible in the McLean's debate. Like, and as someone who watched, I thought he was composed. He came, you know, made a little unhinged in the last half an hour because they was, he was really being attacked by both sides there. But yeah, he, from the get-go, he was very clear. And there was even that, I thought the most interesting point with the Scheer in the debate was, they said, you have an opportunity to ask any leader. And then the entire crowd burst into laughter um, because it was that, that is so indicative of the rancor but that has become the Americanization of Canadian politics uh, where it's 
it's almost like Canada is trying so hard to be bipolar in the way the United States is politically. Okay. Was the fact Liberal leader Justin Trudeau was still standing the best the Grits could hold, hope for? Trudeau still standing. Elton John was still standing Saturday night and Friday night in Winnipeg. I'm not going to sing it. I have, yes, I, yes, he was still standing and that was the best he could hope for. Yeah, I, I, I think he did fine. I don't think it was hugely memorable. I think he held his ground reasonably well. Um, I think he was out, out authenticified and out, um, sort of out funnied and out every manned by Jagmeet. Um, I thought, he, like, Jagmeet sort of stole some of that glamour and some of that charm and that sort of casual grace, I think, that we now expect from Trudeau that he doesn't, I don't think he quite has anymore. Um, yeah, I think that was the best he could hope for. Um, it wasn't terrible, it wasn't memorable, there's no memes. It's, yeah, it's, it's about as good as it was okay. gonna get. And that's all he really needed to do. That's all yeah, he needed I mean, to do. He's playing yeah. defense, lose. you come in as the Not front lose. runner, just don't lose. I, I walk out, you know, unscathed, and he did. And I think, you know, mission accomplished for him. I, I, I will say though that, um, and because most of us have covered a lot of the seminal debates in Manitoba, like, it is actually an incredible talent to not make a funny face when someone is attacking you. And those, because it's, it's what they call the cutaway shot. So, you know, while Andrew Shear is like, you know, going off like an uncovered blender, they cut away to, they cut away to Trudeau. And, you know, you gotta have, you gotta look kind of in control, you know? And if you don't, the, that's what starts to, you know, that's the blink when you're being attacked. Uh, Gary Filman and Gary Dewar, you know, in, in, uh, in 99, uh, when, you know, Dewar went after Philman and Philman got caught in a cutaway where he looked like he was gonna lean over and strangle Dewar. And, <laughs> and that was, like, that was a seminal moment. Like, you could feel the election shift. And, you know, like, whatever, however you wanna describe that, that casual grin, uh, he really, you know, he kind of just stood there and took it, took the abuse. And there is a, like, that's actually, you know, think about talking to your kids, right? But it's hard to do to, to like, talk to much, them and not make, you know, yeah. funny I think, so. sorry, Paul, much, much like he did when he, and Trudeau did, when he did the Old Market Square um, yeah. Mia Culpa Part 2, he stood there for 45 minutes and took it. And I think there is some grudging respect that you have to have for somebody that does that. Um, he had to do it, it was the right PR move, but I think, I think that he, he's mm -hmm. getting a little good at that now, I think. So as a boxer, as a boxer that would be called rope-a-dope. Uh, yeah, okay. but you told me not to use any boxing, no. you know, Lexi. Was, yeah. There was no knockout punch references in free press. That's true, he sent me coverage. a text before the debate telling me no, <laughs> okay. no knockout reference in my column. Finally, uh, Green leader Elizabeth May at one point conceded the election to the Liberals. What do we think of that? Uh, oh well. I was gonna say in the last round, but I was, I'll get to the May thing in a minute, but I mean, it can't be said, I think when they write the history books, you know, down the road, I think the two things that will save this election for Trudeau will be the SNC-Lavalin affair, which will actually help him in Quebec, because the way the SNC-Lavalin affair appears to Quebecers is a sovereignty issue, it has nothing to do with corruption. It has everything to do with, with the sovereignty. Jobs. It's Yeah, and then he keeps playing that line of, as long as I protect jobs, what he really should be saying is I'm protecting jobs in Quebec. And that will, and you could saw, you actually saw it with the Bloc Québécois, 
leader attacking Shear. Like he did, he turned completely away from Trudeau. I had no interest there. Mm -hmm. And so the, uh, the the that and then the other part of it is all you got to do is say is say Doug Ford. That's all I got to say. That's all I got to say. Like you don't even have to say anything other than that. Hey, Doug Ford, and then you're going to gain half of Ontario. You know, like you're. That's all you got to say. Um, Elizabeth May, I thought, uh, performed very well and amicably. The problem is, of course, the Green Party is a relatively one-party issue. One party, sorry, one-issue party, and uh, they can't seem to shake that. Even though they have some pretty innovative ideas, and when it when it came to the climate change debates, I thought she really pushed the envelope really well. And she also, in an interesting way, in which you don't see very often, differentiated herself from the NDP on that issue, uh, and I think the NDP has been able to gain some foothold in the environmental kind of uh, uh, interests of Canadians, but because she was able to get into the 60% uh, reduction versus 38% reduction, and there was that kind of moment in the debate when she said, and you don't even have a, uh, you have a 30% reduction, you have no reduction at all. And so I think that was her way, was her, whoever came up with that line, very smart, right up there with Mr. Delay and Mr. Deny. Like it was, uh, those, those are the two lines of the debate that I thought were the best, uh, was Mays basically saying, you're 60%, I'm, we're 60%, you're 38, you're, thir I thought that was a really brilliant line and also the that particular differentiation mm -hmm. by Singh. Mm -hmm. Good. We're going to move to climate change now. We've seen the rallies as uh, students across Manitoba and elsewhere uh, struck on a Friday. We know who wants to axe the carbon tax. We've heard from Greta Thunberg. And we know what scientists are warning. As Saturday's front page in the Free Press asked, is this the year that climate change becomes the ballot question. We're going to set the table for this discussion with Mary Agnes from Pro Research based on what you found from mm -hmm. Manitoba voters. Right. A, a significant number, not a majority, but a significant number say that, that climate change is their top issue in this election. The problem with that, and I, and I think this is really, you know, if, if Indigenous you know, peoples are the, is the, this is the first time we're talking about that this election. I think it also is genuinely the first time we're having a debate about climate change. The problem with it is, is we don't know where to put our vote. If we think climate change is truly our ballot question, um, is we also think Elizabeth May is the best one to handle it, but we're not apparently voting for her in any great numbers according to every single poll out there. So where do we put our vote? And I think this gets back to something Nigan said about uh, in, during the, the debate, where we are now in this position as voters, if we're not going to vote for Shear because we have some understanding there needs to be a price on carbon, so Shear is out, who of the others? Is it 64? What, who has a target? Who has a plan? Who, how can I make sense of this? Who's giving me the best home heating rebate? <laughs> you know, I can't, I, I, it is, just as the debate did not, for me, uh, illuminate some of these questions um, and clarify and simplify these policies, I think most Canadians still even just a couple weeks out of, from the campaign, or from, from voting day, are still trying to figure out who, if that truly is their, their big uh, top issue, then, then who do I vote for legitimately? And I actually think when people get to the ballot box, they will be voting on a great many other things that are not climate change uh, related, yeah, I, unfortunately. I can't agree more. The, uh, like, I, I hear what you're saying when you say it's, number, it's a big issue right up there with Indigenous issues. Um, the, I think of climate change the way that Canada treats genocide of Indigenous peoples. It's not genocide, genocide. It's just genocide. And so what that means is, is that 
it's like it's it's like if we were talking about ge if genocide was truly a part of the national conversation, which is what the Murder Missing Indigenous Women Inquiry uh, suggests that you know Indian policies or Indigenous policies have been constituted, then we would be talking about the World Court being involved. We'd be talking about uh, restitution. Oh, we'd be talking about account. return of yeah. land. We'd be talking about a whole bunch of things. But we don't have to talk about that. We went, oh yeah, and then the Prime Minister went, oh yeah, it's genocide, and then we just moved on from that. Uh, and so we're still having debates whether it should go in the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, never mind whether it should be on an everyday basis of whether it affects Canadians. That's climate change. It's climate change, but it's not climate change. <laughs> it's like climate change. And so, meaning that we don't actually want to commit to it um, as in a wholesale kind of way. We like to talk about it because it's the right thing to do, and it's because our 13-year-olds mm -hmm. are doing it. Yep. Uh, my 13-year-old particularly, every single day, she's like, Daddy, why don't you have a Green Party sign up? Like, every day. Yeah. Tom, well, does, does, the, does the fact that as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau bought a pipeline, does that undercut his environmental credentials? Because clearly, we saw in the debate, he wanted to make clear, I have a plan, Andrew Shear, you do not. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't think it undercuts it. I think a lot of reasonable Canadians know that you're not going to uh, cut yourself, we're not going to cut ourselves off of uh, oil consumption tomorrow. Uh, or next year, or in five years, that uh, Trudeau explained during the debate that uh, it's going to be a transition. Um, maybe not everybody agrees with uh, Canada buying or federal government buying a pipeline, but uh, there's an understanding that this isn't going to happen overnight, that we're, we're not going to wean ourselves off, off oil consumption that quickly. Um, so I don't think it really hurts him that much. So, uh, like uh, Nagan, I'm uh, uh, fortunately a father of a, of a daughter who was a participant in the recent uh, rallies, and, um, and she's here tonight. I'm not going to identify her, because then she won't ride home with me afterwards. But, um, but uh, there has been, there has been a, a, a great deal of additional perspective added to, um, to my view of this issue and how it's resonating. So one of the problems with, uh, uh, you know, and I think this, this touches on both what Mary Agnes and Nagan said, is that, um, yeah, like, if you get 100 sensible people in a room and ask them, are you concerned about climate change? Most of them will say yes. And then you ask them, what are you prepared to do about it? And there's nothing but the sound of crickets. And so the fact is, we haven't gotten to the point yet where we're willing to give up anything to deal with climate change. And I see that every day I go to the Superstore parking lot when it's six degrees outside and I see people sitting inside their cars idling and texting on their phones. Like, we just don't get it, right? We don't think it's an immediate threat. So the problem is, like the debate the other night actually presented it as a crisis. And to, you know, even Andrew Scheer was careful not to deny it as a crisis, even though he may not believe it is. But, you know, certainly Jagmeet Singh and, and, uh, and Elizabeth May and Justin Trudeau believe that it's a crisis. And yet, you know, we don't, aren't willing to support the parties that are willing to bring a response that's commensurate with the size of the problem. We're just not. Um, and I'm not... You're a proxy for the Canadian electorate, so I'm not trying to, you know, hold you responsible. But you really, you know, we really need to wake up and smell the, the gasoline fumes because, you know, it is a crisis, and uh, the parties that have the best chance of forming government do not have a response. What my daughter taught me is that 
uh, a younger generation that's on the verge of being able to vote totally do not uh, endorse the real politic of regional, pol of regional politics in Canada. They don't respect the fact that the Liberals need to buy and execute on the pipeline to remain, remain in government. It is a reality that if they don't buy that bloody pipeline and they don't do, they don't pay tribute to that side of the equation, they will not get elected. Okay. And you know what? The younger generation doesn't care. And and I, my hope is that those people who don't don't have the patience for that politics of, of convenience or practicality uh, follow through and actually vote uh, when they get the chance. Right. We're going to move to Indigenous issues. In 2016. Justin Trudeau was still in the midst of his honeymoon, and I had a chance to have a conversation with, at, with uh, the Liberal leader at the Free Press Cafe, where I asked him if he was in danger of raising expectations among Indigenous people so high that he risked more than just disappointment if he couldn't deliver. At the time, here's how Trudeau answered my question. I think we understand the challenges we're facing were created largely by Canada and the Canadian government over decades, indeed centuries. And they're going to take years to turn around. But I do know, and I feel that every time I have a conversation with an Indigenous person right across the country, that there is a tremendous opportunity to start meaningfully down the path of getting it right. Nagan, start us off. Are we on the path to getting it right? Uh, yeah, like I think uh, this federal government uh, has committed more in terms of interest and in terms of... Um, Kelowna Accord-like interest to deal with emergency situations uh, than any federal government in Canadian history. And so on one level, that's a good thing. Uh, dealing, like I think it's important that we lift boil water advisories and we've got, you know, 70-something lifted, 50 more to go. Uh, but that's not reconciliation. Like that's not, that's, reconciliation is not treating people like human beings. It's just treating people like human beings. That's the problem, is that the, conver the frame of the conversation in which we have in relation with Indigenous peoples is not about partnership, it's about uh, um, draconian control. It's like, what, stop complaining and protesting, we're going to keep dealing with these things to get you to stop complaining and protesting. Um, but we don't, not actually being a full partner within the country itself. And that's why the, the, the real conversation in the debate last night, uh, every single day in relation to developments of the splitting of the Indigenous Affairs Department into two, two ministries, uh, the creation of the Indige Indigenous Languages Commissioner, all of those things seem like good things, but they are still just paint on an already broken down house. And you, the problem is you have to rebuild the house, and that means you have to fix the foundation. You can't have partnership when there's an Indian Act in place. And when there's an Indian Act in place, all you have is draconian control by the federal government on Indigenous peoples, and then you have chiefs and councils, which are systems that are imposed on Indigenous peoples. That's not the way that we govern ourselves. And so, nor is the ways that we, we pitch our land claims. So, like, none of that is in the conversation because we're too busy saying, well, how do we get this broken model to work? Well, newsflash, it's broken. It's broken, 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 broken. So we shouldn't be surprised when it keeps breaking and then consultation breaks down which is never consultation it's just how many times do we hammer you to say yes and how many times do you have to pay you off and how many how much money do we got to throw at you so you're eventually going to accept or how many years do we have to fight you until it's so obvious that we're fighting you with 14 million dollars with the cap young barracks that we're eventually going to have to pay uh, pay for something that's inevitably going to be a decision anyways so what i would say is that the problem is that the the way that the prime minister has operated um, as almost the exact same way that every other federal government has operated just trying to put paint on a broken house. 
Um, and by changing a window doesn't change the foundation of the house. Now the other problem is, is that when you promise you're going to rebuild the house, <laughs> uh, don't be surprised when people are disappointed when you don't rebuild the house. Like, uh, like I was there, um, my father's uh, Murray Sinclair, and so I was part of the TRC process. And um, I, I witnessed when he went up to the stage and he committed to the 94 calls to action. When he committed to the 94 calls to action, everybody went, that's amazing. And then I turned to my sister and I said, you know, the Indian Act's over now. And turns out it's still here. <laughs> and <laughs> like, that's, like, you can't commit to the United Nations Declaration and have draconian control over every Indigenous life. Uh, where the government makes all determinations for what you can do, where you can go, uh, the, the businesses you can create, the, and, and so on and so forth. You can't have those things, those things together. And so what that tells me is that um, when you overpromise, you create anger and, and at times apathy, and sometimes um, resistance to your policies. And what I would say, and what I've said many times on the record is, I think Indigenous peoples would be open to projects such as economic projects like pipelines if it wasn't for the fact that Indigenous peoples foot the bill on almost everything and ask yourself this question, why do all the pipelines go through First Nations? Why do they never go through uh, major urban centres involving non-Indigenous people? Like why do Indigenous peoples have to foot the bill on every single economic resource project and have to deal with all the environmental disasters and risk that's involved with it? Like why is that? And that might tell you a little bit about the relationship as it stands today. Good. On October 21st, there are 14 Manitoba seats at play. Mary Agnes, the poll that you did for us set the table again. What's what's it looking like based yeah. on your the data that you came up with? I mean, I think um, most people here are from Winnipeg, so I hope nobody will be offended when I say this. Really, it's only the Winnipeg uh, ridings that we're watching. And we have seen in Winnipeg, um, I think, a 20-point dip in Liberal support from, from the, the, the very inflated high of the last election. Um, and so that obviously puts in play several seats. Um, you know, I think I have a beer bet uh, already, so several beer bets on a few of them, you know, potentially Winnipeg South. Um, I don't think so, but maybe. Um, uh, you know, I think I think obviously Mary Mahaychuk is in a tough fight, uh, uh, sort of in uh, Kil North Kildonan, East St. Paul, um, and of course in sort of the Charleswood, the crazy long-named Charleswood, St. James, Headingley, Assiniboia uh, riding. Um, but there's some weird ones too. There is this quite interesting fight in this riding in Winnipeg Centre between two Indigenous uh, First Nations uh, candidates, um, and so there's also this, this, and, and also in Transcona. So there's kind of this question of how well the NDP are going to do um, in Manitoba, and I, I, I think the news might be uh, pretty tough for them uh, federally in Manitoba. So I think that's sort of so the, the, the lay of the land. It's going to be tough for the Liberals or the, the NDP? The, well, the Liberals and the NDP, but okay. I think, yeah, the Liberals. Going into the campaign, Tom, you warned that the Liberals were going to lose seats. Um, are you sticking to that? And has anything changed based on the debate or, or the events that we've seen over the past three weeks? No, no nothing's changed all campaign. As uh, Dan was talking about earlier, nothing moves the needle and we're just been stuck in this in this, uh, this tie between the two major parties. In Winnipeg, I still think they go from uh, seven down to three, possibly four seats, um, um, including, I think, they lose Winnipeg Center, Marianne Mahajchuk, um, St. James, crazy long name St. James. Yeah. Um, I, I disagree think, uh, on St. James. Let's uh, have a beer bet on that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I think Jim Carr stays. I think Dan Vandell stays, and I think nobody can unseat Kevin Lamoureux's yeah. uh, ground game yeah. because never no matter bet what happens, against the Lamoureux. never, never bet, bet against the Lamoureux ground game. Um, but yeah, they go from seven to three or four, I believe, and and the NDP might be in a tough fight in in um, Transcona. They uh, are, uh, yeah. With uh, Lawrence Tote coming back to uh, to take on Blakey, that could be uh, um, that could lead the NDP with maybe just Nikki Ashton. Uh, Nikki Ashton in Western Canada. Yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> so yeah, they're they're tough. So Judy Clausen didn't run provincially; she's running federally. Do the Liberals have a chance in that riding under Judy Clausen versus Nikki Ashton? Again, I Dan. We, I think we've also learned not to bet against the Ashton machine. Okay. The, the provincial election showed us that. So, we were sorry. We were just talking about the Winnipeg Centre riding. Okay. Like I'm watching that very closely because I, a, it's interesting to me because you've got two Indigenous candidates who uh, who have a, kind of a dynamic interest. In, they both have a very dynamic following. Uh, I think that Leah is Leah Gazan is the new. Um, new energy, and she's, you know, her partner's Romeo Saganash. I mean, you've got sort of NDP royalty kind of uh, driving the boat there, and I think it's a, a, there's a real sense of change, and there's a real tiredness with Robert Falconelot's antics and his self-interest, and uh, and I think that there's, and there's also that, that kind of Wolseley quotient that's in there. But I'd say that the North is a similar, in a similar situation. I think Judy Clausen is a very interesting and attractive candidate, but I think it's very difficult to run against. I think if anything, um, a very good candidate ran against her, uh, who went to almost every single First Nation in the North. Rebecca Chartrand ran for the Liberals last time around, and uh, she just couldn't. She just couldn't overcome. Even. You know. All right, we're going to turn to you now. We have about 30 minutes left here. We have a microphone here and a microphone over there. So if you could make your way to the microphones, because you need to be at the microphones, because you get to be on the podcast if we hear you. So you can make your way and. Uh, Direct your questions and there we'll see an, where this goes. An audience of dozens are awaiting your questions. <laughs> my, my name is Margaret Friesen. Yes, Margaret. I'm wondering what party do you think will uh, protect our national security the best? That was not part of the debate questions last night. Mm. Uh, isn't that interesting, though? Nice. But it was part of the McLean's debate. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 like, that's interesting that you, you take out the Trudeau quotient from that debate and China becomes an issue. Like, suddenly China's an interesting issue mm. because then it became more centralized around Shear, around the, the Conservatives. And so... Um, I, I think it's... Sorry, it's, I think yeah. it's also... It depends on what you wrap into national security. <laughs> like, honestly, there's a very, very narrow band... Uh, uh, you know, of ideology or philosophy that's applied to Canadian foreign policy and, and to national security. Like, we're just, um, diplomatically, we try to hit above our weight, but in terms of national security, are, do, do you think immigration is a national security issue? Um, I was thinking more of the Huawei issue and who is control, who's controlling... Um, well, the internet or the privacy issues, um, you know, we've got all of this data about ourselves out there, mm. and who's actually in charge? Who's actually got access to all of this information? Do 
other countries, China, Russia, have access to this. So who is the best party, which is the best party, to actually protect us from um, cybersecurity issues? I, I think that you have uh, magnificently identified an issue to which the, the parties and the leaders have not paid a lot of attention. Uh, you know, the, the, the issue with uh, Huawei and China is kind of its own separate dynamic um, because we, you know, we were snookered a bit by an international treaty uh, with the Americans that put, largely put us in that position. But, you know, on, you know, I, I have always just assumed that we are largely, as a country, unprepared for uh, the, uh, the challenges of foreign countries meddling in our domestic affairs. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that because just about every country is completely unprepared, even those that have, you know, have been notoriously interfered with are still unprepared. Um, you know, there's, it's kind of uh, internet, like, you know, cyber terrorism and financial planning. Uh, the people who know how to do these things are always one step ahead of the authorities. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I, I just assume that we're, that we're all, all the parties are equally unprepared. We're going to go over here. Uh, I get a feeling that uh, in Canada we tend to cannibalize our leaders. And w what do you guys think? I think running for public office is, is tough. And uh, having been raised in a very political home, uh, and I think that there's uh, political leaders are kind of like NHL coaches. You kind of get a shelf life and then people stop listening to you. And there, is that a good analogy? I don't know. Is that a good? Yeah, I mean, and then. Trudeau only had a better power play. <laughs> so, like you've got, so I think that, I don't know if it's so much a cannibalize as it is a, uh, a particular tone. You have to hit the right tone at the right moment. And I think uh, when we were sending out, we, were, we sent out the um, comments for tonight, you sent us some stuff, Paul, and, and you were talking about uh, the ways that the West turned against Trudeau in the 1980s, right? And the way, I think that there is a, there is kind of a flavor that goes east-west in this country. I would say that uh, the east-west uh, divide grows and then ebbs and flows. That's for me, I think, is the very strong, and you're either a Western leader or you're an Eastern leader, and you particularly see that with Scheer coming from the West, and you see Trudeau coming from the East. And it's just, and then we go again. That's how I see it. But, okay. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, again, I kind of have a bit more of a Pollyanna um, sort of reaction to that. I think, I think an election is, of course, that's what happens in an election is you, you know, you pick apart your leaders. That's what we're supposed to do. But if the worst thing that we have, the worst scandal we have in this election is two planes, a passport, and blackface, which is admittedly pretty terrible, if that's, if that's what the big scandals are, then I'm actually not sure we're doing too badly in terms of the caliber of our leaders. Mm -hmm. And I have, to, I have to say, watching them at the debate, um, I, I had, a, as, as messy as that debate was, I actually thought all of the people on stage, perhaps Bernier accepted, were reasonably intelligent, authentic, <laughs> decent people um, who have the best interests of the country uh, genuinely at heart. And I, as messy as that was, and, as, and we can have a million policy disagreements, you know, there's a lot of talk about the caliber of candidates that we're getting and the caliber of people running, you know, uh, for office. 
we've done worse than the people that were on that stage um, the other night. And so I, you know, as yeah, I'm. I, I, I'm a little bit more hopeful, I think, about, about the state of things. There, there was this really weird moment for me during the debate where I was watching it, and of course, uh, my, the whole debate was a debacle when it came to Indigenous issues. It was a, like the most meaningless, I called it a meandering, meaningless mess. But, but there was this kind of weird moment where Andrew Scheer started defending Indigenous languages. And he says, mm -hmm. I'm going to invest in Indigenous languages. And I had that moment where I was like, that, like that's a conservative leader talking about saving indigenous languages. Like, like that just doesn't happen in the United States, like, like in any way. And, and so if, uh, if there's hope to be found, I would say that there was a decorum and there was an interest. And like I said, many times you're, for many Canadians, their heart's in the right place, but their mind might not be catching up to their heart yet. Over here, sir. My name is Brent Corrigan. Uh, in 2012, I retired as uh, principal of Clerestered Chittines Collegiate. In 2011, I unsuccessfully ran for the nomination for one of the parties in the provincial election. Uh, I care about our youth and I care about democracy. I'm also 62 years old and I expect in 20 to 30 years I'm not going to have to worry about any of this. But I have three children. And in my mind, there's only one issue, and that's climate change and the environment. Any other perspective is simply selfish. All other issues are subordinate to climate change. How do we maintain a strong economy while addressing climate change? How do we address indigenous issues while we work towards reversing the effects of climate change? How do we address poverty and inequality and economic status while working towards improving our environment? My question then is, uh, why is this not the focus of the press and its columnists do you not believe in climate change, or do you not see yourselves as drivers of public opinion? Um, I would just say, have you, have you read any? Have you read my pieces? <laughs> like, uh, Indigenous peoples are the only people who are fighting for this issue, and legally so. And we've been doing it for since that we've been allowed to leave the reserves in 1960. The only people who have a legal right in order to protect uh, the land itself. And that's because we don't, we're not environmentalists. There's nothing about indigenous peoples that's environmentalists. We are lifists, meaning that you can't sing bear songs when there's no bears. And so a treaty right or an aboriginal right innately has to do with the land. And so what I would say is, uh, like I think every column I've ever written is a climate change column. But anyways, so, so I, I would say that the most important thing to understand in which um, for, in terms of climate change is, I think what helps me a lot is that I've got this daughter who's in my ear a lot, and that really helps me to, to know that I've got to speak beyond that. Like I can't say Aboriginal treaty rights is climate, is dealing with climate change. I've also got to connect it for people so that they understand that, um, like when I hear you speaking, I think to myself, well, I'll see you at the next march. Like, because I hope you're there to march with us who've been marching this. And when we're marching about Tina Fontaine, we are very much marching about the environment. So. I'm going to just jump in here a, a little bit because I think you, you hit on a good point. The media has a role. We have a responsibility on making sure that issues that matter are put there for discussion and that people can have facts. Um, the poll that Mary Agnes was talking about earlier was we did two things. We asked her the horse race question, how are people looking to vote? And then the one question, the other question that we made a decision to ask on was on climate change. 
That's not by accident. That is deliberate. We could have asked about taxation. We could have asked about deficit. We could have asked about Trans Mountain. We could have asked about a lot of different things. We wanted specifically to try and get a sense of where climate change was as an issue as a jump, jumping off point for columns that Dan has written, for editorials that we are doing, and for what Nagan is, is referencing. I understand the frustration that, that you have on this issue and that others have. Um, I can't defend what the media writ large are doing, but I can say that we are doing our, our damnedest to try and make sure that issues that matter are issues that we're addressing. And part of the discussion here, I'm, I'm, we're looking and we're recording this, both for the podcast and for a video that Michaela's producing, we're looking at what our readers are telling us. And we're going to talk about it, and we're going to learn from that, and that's going to influence the coverage going forward. I'm not sure that answers your question, but I want you to assure you and others who have concern about climate change and other issues that we are trying to make sure that we give each of those some coverage, some more, some less, so that when people go to mark their ballot on October 21st, there's going to be some information, some perspective from an organization that they can trust. And anyone else wants to jump in? Well, yeah. you know, I, like I, I understand your frustration uh, in large part because I think that if you accept that it's a crisis, then the question constantly that you're confronted with is, why aren't we treating it as a crisis? Um, I mean, I spoke about this earlier. Um, we're just not prepared uh, to suffer the pain to get the gain. Um, if, I, if I really tried hard, uh, to find a glass half full part of, uh, of what's going on right now. It's that I, I do, and actually, I don't like, the debate was a mess. But there was actually, there, there were some great moments where the lexicon of the way we're discussing climate change is evolving. And, and it's, uh, I'm hoping our understanding of it does. We're not talking about ruining the Canadian economy. We're talking about transformation. Uh, and yeah, it's gonna kind of be painful. Um, you know, I visited countries where gasoline is two, three, four, five times more expensive than it is here in Canada. It's disgustingly cheap here in Canada. There's no, you know, there's no doubt in my mind why so many people choose to drive more vehicle than they need, because gasoline is, is cheap, and as much as Justin Trudeau can wave his hand and say that he's the first leader to bring in a carbon uh, tax, um, although we disagree on some of the issues of taxation, Tom and I both agree, it's not, it's not at a level to achieve the goal that it's supposed to achieve. So um, we are writing about it, um, but I think that once, like if you're one of the people in the audience that's like Brent, who's reached the point where you say it's a, cr a crisis, we can't say it enough, uh, you know, frequently enough or loud enough uh, uh, to, to, to show that we think it's a crisis. But I think it's a crisis. And I think like everybody else, we're still trying to figure out what some of these solutions are. Is it, is it a price on carbon? Is it technology? Is it, uh, why does the city of Winnipeg still, why have they not switched over to electric buses um, on carbon pricing if it's not 50, dollars a ton, what should it be? Um, 200, 300, 400 dollars a ton? Are we prepared to live with that? Are we prepared to see our gas prices go up that much? We write about this stuff. We disagree on 
some of the solutions, some of the options that are out there. But um, it, it's new, and, and like everybody else, we're trying to figure out what the solutions are, um, what's, what's doable, what isn't, when politicians are not being straightforward with us uh, about things like about the carbon tax. Um, it's, it's, it's complicated, there's a lot to it. We're gonna go over this microphone over here. Hi, my name is Gerilyn. Um, I, the Manito sorry, uh, the Soil Conservation Council of Canada hosted a conference here last week and they talked a lot about the tremendous ability for agriculture to not only reduce carbon emissions, which has already been done a lot, um, but to actually sequester carbon because plants sequester carbon. Um, but this doesn't, be some, doesn't seem to be something that's in the public discourse a lot. Um, why do you think that is? And also, um, why doesn't the Winnipeg Free Press spend more time speaking to the people who are actually um, working in the environment and have their hands in the soil? Uh, uh, Mr. Sinclair probably accepted in this case. I, th I think well, the, the easy... Yeah, just everybody speak up at once. Yeah. <laughs> well, the easy answer, I think, uh, is awful, but uh, probably the most true is that the environmental work that's necessary and needs to be done is often too complicated for people to be able to make in a simple uh, piece or a simple straightforward kind of way. Um, and so oftentimes those stories might not be the most attractive to be able to fit into a news cycle. Like the way that the, the newspaper often works is that we've got news cycles where we pitch uh, we we get space and then we're committed to a word count and you got you got 12 hours to do it or if you're lucky and you're people an investigative reporter you might have a couple days in which to do it but the news cycle demands regular production and some of these issues uh, particularly involving uh, the complicatedness of agriculture in Manitoba like I'm of somebody that I when I wrote a, my column about Brazil right and the massive deforestation that's being done to particularly uh, kill the Amazon forest uh, and kill the, the rainforest and then uh, create massive ecological damage on uh, which is the creation of mega farms uh, it took a lot of being uh, grappling with that issue to understand and then you get writers who say things like uh, all that's not that bad. Uh, a few million acres of trees, that's fine. We've got trees elsewhere. Like, that's so simplistic. So I, the way that I find that often the debate is it's either too complicated and reporters might be uh, shy away from a really complicated uh, issue to be able to fit into a news cycle very quickly and do a good job with it. But then second is that you're often debating nonsense, as if it's the other side of the equation. Uh, when I'm brought on news shows, for example, and they're like, okay, let's get the other side of the Indigenous story. The other side of the Indigenous story is often just racism. And so you're, when you're dealing with a climate change denier, <laughs> you're having to de deal with a very low quotient of discourse. And so I would say that sometimes that might be uh, what's inhibiting some of the environmental uh, debates. I would just say this, that's, but I think, you know, we should all do better. We should, uh, like, uh, were you at the One Basin, One Governance Conference involving Lake Winnipeg? So I'm heavily involved with the Lake Winnipeg issue and the massive overalgae production. Um, it's a very complicated way to understand it because it also involves understanding the way that water operates and the deforestation and frac sand, uh, frac sand up in Manicotaga and the fracking in North Dakota. You have to understand the oil sands of Alberta, all to understand what's going on in Lake Winnipeg. Yeah, and uh, I would just sort of add, because I think Nagan touched on a lot of it, if, if your sense is that the issue or 
the constituency is underserved, you're probably right. Um, uh, the decisions we make on a daily basis are uh, really tough right now. If you go to uh, the Pew Research Center, um, they issue a report every year on the state of the American media, but there's a lot of echo there for what's happening in the Canadian media. And, you know, uh, the newspapers they've studied uh, today run 75% fewer stories than they did 25 years ago. So there, we, you know, we're struggling a bit with an economic issue, although I will say, listening to you, um, you know, and um, celebrating our uh, nearly endless supply of opinions about the issues that are important to you, <laughs> that uh, that we, we probably uh, do need to have a discussion internally about whether we need to, to focus and specialize a little bit more uh, on the issue of climate change. Because, you know, like maybe there ought to be, you know, a climate change beat or something like that. That's actually something we've talked about. Just to, Nagan's talking about the news cycle. There's also the format beyond what we do from the news standpoint, and that's uh, on the op-ed page. There is space available for you and for others and organizations to basically uh, come to our think tank and, and express ideas and to make arguments so that that information that you believe should be part of the water cooler in this city, in this province, that's what the free press is there for. So there's going to be coverage and news. There may not be as much as you want, but there is another avenue there. I mean, we, we're, we're trying to cover the waterfront um, of, of news, of analysis, and, and opinion. So look at um, tomorrow's free press and you'll, you'll see how you can make those submissions. We are welcome, uh, everyone, so that you can come to the free press and, and, and it'll be a place where we can discuss insights and, and have informed debates. We're going to our last question over here, sir. Hi, uh, Will Jones, yes, frequent, Will. frequent letter writer. Uh, I'd like to return to the issue of uh, voter apathy among youth. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan suggested that um, apathy is caused by the gong show of politics, so to speak. Uh, I'd argue it's just a lack of interest, lack of knowledge, uh, and I think that that's expressed by the age demographics in the room tonight. Um, how can we incentivize young voters to get interested, get keyed in on these issues, other than climate, which we know they are keyed into? What about the other issues, which they seem woefully, inadequately prepared to discuss with anybody? I, I, sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think proportional representation is a big youth issue. I think, like, I feel like that's an issue that youth are very aware of. Like, Mary Agnes, do you, yeah. do you know, do you do any polling on youth? Or? Yeah. They, yeah. they typically do uh, care about those issues in a much, much greater number. But I have to say, this is a good example of where I'm just not that worried about youth engagement in the political process. I think youth, and we talk to young people and do focus, group with, focus groups with millennials and high school students all the time, they are profoundly engaged. They're just not engaged in the traditional political process that we're all obsessed with. And so this gets back to my original point that you can decide rationally not to vote um, and not to care about what happens on the debate uh, you know, um, at night, but still be a very good citizen and be active in your community and be marching at the legislature for the climate strike. Um, and, and eventually, it, Typically, that eventually, I think, does turn into 
into some level of, of more traditional political engagement. But I just, I'm, I just don't see that level of, of disengagement and lack of understanding of issues and of the political process. I see it more as a quite rational rejection of our parents' political process. Well, so um, engagement, like it's funny because uh, it's a chicken and egg thing, uh, but engagement is really something that has to start with the individual. And, um, you know, and I, growing up, I mean, I was politically engaged in a number of different ways. Voting was only one of the ways that I was, was politically engaged. But um, I also think that, you know, uh, the macro trends, uh, generational trends, um, we have a decline uh, as society gets older, as the people who have traditionally voted and volunteered and donated money and been members of political parties and members of service organizations, as those people get older and become fewer, what we find is younger generations uh, donate less, volunteer less, they take out fewer, they, they're less likely to be a member of an organization um, and uh, for a moment, I'm in parentheses, I'm setting aside the recent climate change protests, uh, which are their own unique phenomena. And, and like a lot of people, I'm looking to see the, the impact, the consequence and momentum that that might, but might create. But, you know, the fact is, in the, in the news business, I have long associated uh, declining uh, consumption of traditional news, both... Uh, broadcast and print, um, along with uh, a decline in volunteerism, a decline in charitable giving, a decline in participation in community organizations for everything from community clubs to service organizations. The people like, talk to any, anybody a member of a community club board here? Or, yeah, Tom is. Do you, you know how difficult it is to find people just to go out and raise money to support? Uh, facilities and programs for youth sport. Uh, younger people are not getting involved in that. And as a big difference, even when they go on to the next stage in life, which is the mortgage and the kids and, you know, uh, potentially uh, a more stable career, um, they're not. They're not falling into our parents' uh, traditions. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to offer an opinion about whether or not voting is, is a... Uh, a rational or legitimate option. I'm just sort of saying like, so if you're not gonna volunteer and you're not gonna give money and you're not gonna be a member of an organization, if you're not gonna be part of a debate about the future of your community, then how exactly, in, even in a non-traditional way, are you gonna influence what's going on? Uh, I hope that the young people who've been protesting scare the shit out of the people who do have their hands on the levers of power, and I hope, I hope that's how it manifests. But if it doesn't, and if they ignore them, then I wonder how they're gonna press their point. Okay, thanks Dan. I'm gonna stop this uh, because I am mindful of time. It's about uh, 20 to nine. Um, I wanna thank our panelists. I wanna thank Dan Lett, and again, Sinclair, Tom Brodbeck, and Mary Agnes Welsh of Probe uh, Research. But most importantly, I wanna thank you, our readers. Thank you very much, and good night.